It's Roe versus Wade one year later. Where do we go from here? Let's talk pro-life apologetics on Spirit Inspire, starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Spirit Inspire. Joined with me is my co-host, Isaac Fox. Hello, everyone. Hey. Uh, and uh, Eric couldn't be here with us again. Um, still but, on vacation. Uh, I'm still on vacation this week. Oh, it's so sad. But he'll be back very shortly, so don't worry. He'll be here. Um, but with that, uh, today is a very, very... Uh, I think I think it has the makings of a powerful episode today. Uh, and I say this because we have just now passed recently the one year anniversary of Roe versus Wade, you being know, or rather being overturned. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a, that is a powerful milestone to mark, I'd say. Uh, and it's powerful because every year we'll remember because it's always on the feast of St. John the Baptist, right? June 24th. And uh, of course, when it was overturned, it was on the Feast of the Sacred Heart, which you can't forget those moments, right? That's just pivotal and the providence of God. So appropriate on both of those, for both of those feasts. I know. You know, St. John, we have the clear understanding of his awareness of Christ in the womb. So it speaks to that there is real life in the womb. Yes. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And then, of course, the Feast of the Sacred Heart. How perfect is that? Well, think of the, the heart pierced by the lance, blood and water flowing out yeah. in divine mercy on the whole world, a world in so desperate need of mercy for what we've done. Yeah. And I think of this in terms of, um, to kind of set the stage, because today I think is important to consider both the historical implications as well as the philosophical implications of Roe versus Wade right. being overturned and what we need to do to then build a culture of life and a civilization of law of love, because the law may have changed, but our hearts haven't. Right. 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 And how do we do that? It starts, I'd say a little bit of history uh, as far as salvation history goes. Think of uh, the, that original uh, prefigurement in Exodus with Moses being born during a, infanticide, yeah. right? Children being thrown into the, into the Nile River, uh, political move of the Pharaoh to take back possession of the land of Goshen and destroy the Hebrew people. Um, and uh, yet Moses was born in the midst of that, mm-hmm. right? And in the same way, it was it, they were saved on Passover with the death of the firstborn. So it was almost like the sins of the idolatrous Egyptian culture came back to haunt them, right. right? God turned them over to their passions and the angel of death came and and took them basically based on their own choices. And it's right. a sad, sad reality. But that, of course, is fulfilled in the birth of Christ in the fact that we have the death of the holy innocents right. and how Christ is born in the midst of both obscurity but also horrific violence on the part of, ironically, Another the king, king of Israel, yeah. right? The very king that Samuel, the prophet, warned the people about, hey, you're going to eventually elect this guy and the yeah. dictator and wish, all the things. Wish you hadn't gone down this road. <laughs> right. But the parallels are so striking there that the, the Messiah, because Moses was a Messiah. He's the prefigurement of the true Messiah, but he was a yes, Messiah. he was. 
And and when he comes, it's in the situation where you have an evil king who responds by slaughtering or is in the process of slaughtering children. And then when the true Messiah comes, it is also again within this context of an evil king slaughtering children. Oh which my gosh. You know, and I, I don't wanna I don't wanna go down this rabbit hole, but I've sometimes <laughs> wondered in kind of end times terms, you know, if the return of Christ is also marked by this this scourge of abortion, which has become so common in our world, the yes. slaughter of the innocents, again, um, and I don't know that, but it, I've wondered if if that's the connection. But what is it? Why is it, John? Do you think maybe that when we have these moments of the the Messiah coming, why is the innocent children suffer? That is. I don't know that I have an answer. Mm, that is such a powerful question. But it's interesting. Uh, there's there seems to be something about. Um, I think it's kind of like a rejection of God of His will, um, ends up eventually harming the most innocent, the most helpless. Um, I don't know. There's a, it's just an interesting connection. And, though, and it almost that. seems like the only way God's going to send a savior is if we go down that far and that dark. But that's not really what's happening here. It's, no. it's more like through the absence of God, the rejection of God that, that happens gradually in the hearts of many and they fail to or choose not to pass on the faith to their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually that raises up a generation that doesn't know God, doesn't accept God. And that always means the creature having rejected the creator becomes incoherent to itself. We don't even know ourselves. Because the creator is the source of our life, that then leads automatically to loss of life. You can see this in Genesis because God tells Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you will die. But what's the first thing that happens after their rupture from God is their two sons, one of them kills the other. You know, it's kind of like when we remove ourselves from God, we not only have destroyed the life-giving relationship we have with God, we immediately then turn to destroying the, the living relationship we have with those around us. Yes. It's kind of like rejection of God always plays out in terms of murder. Yes, and it always goes to that that four-part rupture that we have with the original sin, with the rupture between our relationship with us and God, with one another, within ourselves, yeah. and with all of creation. All of creation. So yeah. that the the abuse and the, the neglect and the, the murder is often, like, this is why they call it raping and pillaging the land, right? right? And how we manipulate and distort those things. But, but getting back to this idea of of the slaughter of the innocents uh, and that being the common context by which a Messiah is raised up mm-hmm. and the mystery of that, I, I think of it in terms of the mercy of God, right? Like if we didn't have a Messiah come and literally address the issues of the day and speak a language that resonates with the hearts of those who have suffered and gone through such turmoil, we wouldn't be able uh, there would be no hope. It would right. only get worse to the point where we would literally obliterate our own existence. Yeah. It's tragic, but yet there's which something we're, to Which we're that. very capable of doing. Yes. I think one of the... Uh, a thought that I have, though, connecting the, the slaughter of the innocents with the coming of the Messiah is mm-hmm. this. We know from Scripture that 
there is a connection between Jesus and the least of these, his brethren. And it's a very intimate connection, right? You know, Christ says, inasmuch as you did this to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. And then we have the example of St. Paul um, on the road to Damascus when, you know, this tremendous experience happens. He's thrown from his horse. He's struck blind. He hears the voice of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, you know, the obvious answer for Paul there would have been, um, I'm not. Don't even know you. <laughs> right. What was Paul doing? He was persecuting the church. And so this speaks to this living reality that Christ and his church are united in such a way that what you do to one, you're doing to the other. Yes. So I think when we see this coming of the Messiah, mm. what actually happened here? Well, why did Herod want to kill the children? He was trying to kill Jesus. Yes. So, so Herod, if you look at him as a man and try to see, okay, what's his characteristics in this story? He's a king who's afraid for his throne, right? Even though he's not really the true king, Never he was. should, in his context, be welcoming the coming son of David. Right. Right. So he's trying to hold on to his own worldly position. Um, he's clearly in some way rejected God, rejected the prophecies, rejected all of this. Right. So he's not in a good relationship with God. And then there's this great sort of self-centeredness of, I want my life, my position, my money, my power, yada, yada, yada. Right. All that whole thing. And so when the Messiah comes, who is really going to change that entire world for Herod. Herod says, no, I'm going to kill this Messiah, get him out of the way, out of the picture. Um, but it's interesting that what happens is rather than killing the Messiah, he ends up killing all these children. So I think when you see that picture, it's interesting that the attempt to kill Christ plays out in real time as the killing of the least of these, my brethren. Yes. These little children. Because what that means to me is that Christ is somehow the image of God is there in these little children in a very special way. How we treat each other says an awful lot about our relationship with God. Yes. Going back to the passage in Matthew, what does Jesus say we should be doing, you know? giving a drink of water to the thirsty, clothing the right, naked. The corporal you know. and spiritual works of mercy. Right. But in doing that, we are actually doing this to Jesus in some very real way. And so I think the reverse is true. It's not that Herod set out to kill little children because he just didn't like little children. Right. You know, he's really trying to kill Christ. And in some way, that's kind of what he's doing because the image of Christ is in these children. Yes. And, and you think of Moses uh, being born in the midst of that infanticide. Pharaoh wasn't trying to just kill children. Pharaoh, in that same vein, was really trying to reacquire the land of Goshen and prevent a military uprising, meaning he was trying to hold on to his power. Same as Herod. That's the it's exact identical. same process. Yeah. And so I think in terms of this salvific historical context— what we're facing in our culture today, I think, can be explained with, you know, a, a Messiah figure, a Christ figure being raised up to address the issues and, uh, and speak words that resonate on the hearts of millions, um, as well as, and, and I think that's John Paul II, right, among many, but yeah. he was a particular figure in that. Uh, but then there 
is also the reason abortion even was legalized, why it even came into being, what yeah. allowed that, who was trying to hold on to power, what yeah. was the dictatorial attitude that was enslaving people's hearts to convince them that this was even a good thing to do culturally, right? I think it's twofold. Yeah. Um, I'm really struck by the fact that you honed in on that that question of power because we could say that there are many sins which could lead to harming other people. But you're right, it does seem in both these stories there's something very important about this holding on to power, right? This concern for one's position, which in turn plays out in hurting the little children. Yes. And the first thought that popped across my mind was just thinking of my own experience. Because there are a few things that take our rights, our autonomy, our power away from us in a good way, more than having little children. And I can, I can speak to this very personally, because yeah, as you know, you I can. have a lot of them, right? <laughs> How many again? Eight. Oh my, right? I love it. So there are certain things as a father of eight that are going to change in my life. Now, I'm very happy to have those children. I wanted to have children. I didn't think through all the consequences prior to having children. Right. So I was not going out asking for certain things to change in my life. But they did, whether I wanted to or not. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was no king on my throne, but there, there is, as a single person, some level of autonomy you feel. Mm. I can choose to do X, Y, and Z. And, and those don't even have to be immoral things. I'm talking about good things, ordinary, everyday things of life. that The free choices that I feel like I can make. And then you know, the, the children come along and it's like, oh boy. Um, I feel as if in a sense, as parents, we, th we think of that as a position of authority, but it's really a position of service. Much like the Pope, you know, we call him the servant of the servants of God. Yes. And what does Christ say? He who would be greatest among you, let him be the least, let him be the servant of all. Mm. You know, my life and that of my wife has become one of service now. Um, so, but it's not like somebody came and kidnapped me and shackled me and, you know, said, you have to obey me as like a slave now. Right. It's a service of love or should be choice. ideally. Right. It was a free choice. And these precious children are beings that I love, but they do absolutely have a certain rule over my life. My position <laughs> on my little throne of me in charge or thinking I'm in charge of my life, that's gone. And so I think that maybe mm, there are two particular so things in our culture that we have come to worship. They are both good things, but we've made them idols. Yes. Sex is one of them. Mm -hmm. And that's going... There's a certain level of power that comes from that. There is, right? yeah. But even, even besides that, there is wanting to have a certain power over sex. Yes. Sex oh. without certain responsibilities or sex Taking the way the I want Taking the creative powers of God mm -hmm. into our own hands. Is that not the original sin? Yeah. Right? Mm. And then secondly, we think when Roe versus Wade actually happened initially, um, so much of it and all the language surrounding that in the decades since has played out within this paradigm of freedom of choice, freedom to do what I want with my body. Now, I think when we dig into the philosophical aspects of this later on, we're going to say, look, this is not your body, right? This is, I mean, we can talk to science on this, but even so, we would all agree that freedom is a good thing. 
I mean, that's not, that is not an evil. That is a positive good. The ability for us to have free will, the ability to have choices, the ability to not be slaves, to not be subjugated to foreign powers or whatever, right? right. These are good things, things that we as Christians should uh, strive for. Well, it makes sense that in America, having been founded on a revolution of right. sorts against a dictator. We're very freedom-oriented people. We are very freedom, and tragically, we're revolutionary people, right, by right. nature. So, I think we, we confuse revolution with freedom sometimes. We, we can, right? Like, and I, and I didn't really... I'm not a history buff like Eric Huff is, right? Mm -hmm. But I uh, was recently watching a, uh, a video series that Roe Woods has put out on uh, a lot of some of the current issues on gender and things like that. And they were talking about the scientific revolution, which I had never cognitively yep. heard of. And yep. I, I was thinking, is he confusing it with the industrial revolution? But yeah. I realized, no, this is from the 1600s, right. 14 to 1600s. Kind of like Newtonian physics. Yes. On. That would have allowed the industrial revolution to be even be possible. Right. And so you start with this basically rejection of the mysterious, the immeasurable for the measurable and the tangible. Mm -hmm. And, the material. And right. so suddenly we, instead of seeing all of creation as a window pointing us to God, we see it as God. And that has opened, sadly, God allowed this for a time that I guess it brought advancement to society to some extent, right? Because you wouldn't have microwaves and air conditioning without sure. it, right? But it gave birth to other things beyond industrialization. It brought materialism and secularism, mm -hmm. and it took men and women out of their homes and raising their children and focused them on a more mechanistic approach to society. Right. So machines and and conveyor belts and assembly lines, right? Well, and that's interesting you use the word mechanistic because that's actually what the Newtonian physics is, is it creates a mechanistic model of the universe itself. And it's interesting that it's only been in the last hundred years with the advent of quantum mechanics that we've begun to realize that when you go, I mean, Newtonian physics hold on a surface level, but when you try to explain the entire universe in terms of uh, this very mechanistic sort of model, it breaks down at the deepest levels. Yes. And so it's interesting now that science has come this far, but it's now actually beginning to... Uh, Sort of undo un itself, undo it. uh, not itself in the or, sense yeah. of science, but yeah, undo its its beginnings or undo that viewpoint. Right, but that's a good thing. But I think, um, yeah, I think that these these are two things which are good: sex and and freedom. Yes, but I think that what's happened is we've idolized them, and isn't this really what an idol is? Taking things which in and of themselves are good, wood and stone, and you know the things the Bible talks about. But then replacing God with them or making too much of them. Mm -hmm. And that's when they go from being a positive good to a positive and very severe evil. And I think that two things happened in the last hundred years, um, particularly maybe the last six or seven here in the United States, but abortion didn't start in the United States. So I think maybe we'll talk about that in a moment too. But this, this sort of uh, worship of sex, you know, it gets put on, on a real pedestal. Um, and also the sense of autonomy, of personal freedom. And this plays out then as I should absolutely, not just in certain cases, but I should absolutely have full control over my body. 
and my choices. And those choices include who and how I want to have sex and what I want to happen from that sex, right? How I, what I want, I want to control what the results. What kind of attachments, what kind of consequences. Right. I want to, I want to do this, but control the consequences. And so when this becomes an idol, when freedom of choice becomes more important than human life, then freedom of choice is like designed to bring sort of a fullness to human life, right? So that we're not slaves, we have this freedom. Right. But when it becomes more important than human life, it ends up becoming a master that ends up destroying our lives. Yes. And anytime we idolize something, it becomes a master that destroys us, whereas all of nature was meant to be subject to us, right? Have dominion over the world. Mm. And it's to be used for its proper uses. Yes. It's to be treated in a certain way with respect, but also as, in some way, under the dignity of the human person. And when anything in nature gets elevated above that, we become the slave and it destroys us. It's it's a tragedy when that happens. And, and that's, I think, why we are facing such turmoil today. I mean, because you get from, from the scientific revolution to the industrial revolution, it gives birth to the sexual revolution. Of course. And then, of course, we have the technological revolution. And when you combine those two, now we have what is called the gender revolution or the transhumanism revolution. Revolution. And it's... even before that, when you have the technological combined with the sexual, because the sexual revolution is this attempt to allow for um, maybe too much freedom in right. sexual matters. Well, freedom more but, license than right, freedom. Exactly. Right? Not a true freedom, but a license. Mm -hmm. But when you attempt to go down that road, there's still going to be consequences and results until you can bring technology in. And say, okay, now I got the license and I've got the technology to fix the problem. So, I mean, we can look even back to contraception. Yep. We can talk about abortion. We can talk about a lot of things even before even before getting to the transgender movement where technology kind of combined with the sexual revolution to enable people to um, feel they could do those things without apparent consequences. Yes, and it goes back to that mechanistic mentality yeah. that people have kind of absorbed through all the changes in society over the last four or 500 years. And you think back to Israel and Egypt, they were in slavery for about 400 years, years yeah. right? And so I look at the anniversary of Roe versus Wade being overturned as like this cosmic midpoint from the you know, slavery to the moment of deliverance. Yeah. Now we're going to be in a wilderness for a while. Yeah, because but... the story's not over. Right. As we you have... said at the beginning, you know, it's one thing about a law changing. And in one sense, it's not even a full change of the law, right? This, this simply sort of allows state freedom. Right, right. So it doesn't mean an end to abortion. No, it doesn't. Uh, but it's a lot more to change hearts at that point. And then also... Look, it's great if we have abortion not legalized, but what's causing abortion? Correct. And so this is another issue, what's and the it's, root? it's a big one. Why are people looking for abortions? If we want to go deeper, we need to look at healing that aspect of the culture mm -hmm. to where it becomes something that, that isn't wanted. Yes, it, it's something where, and this is honestly, this is why I fell in love with theology of the body. Mm -hmm. This is actually what uh, uh, 
my good friends, Donna and Gary Burry, who helped found FRP, this is part of why they founded it. They realized that men and women going into abortion clinics are there because we have failed them as a society exactly. at helping them understand the dignity of the human person. So the root cause happens long before they're walking down that sidewalk toward that place. Yeah. It is something that requires decades of formation and absorbing a different language, a different worldview, a different ideology. And this is where words have power. Ideas have consequences. And so abortion is simply the fruit of centuries of ideological tumult, yeah. total confusion and change to overthrow the God who made us, to replace him with the image of ourselves in a, a position of power to then control and manipulate the forces of life, the creative powers of being itself, right? Mm. And I think it's not just ideological, it's also very practical because people find themselves in situations where right. they feel like, okay, the only way out is to have an abortion. You know, how can we be used by God in our culture to make those situations less rare or more rare, sorry. Right. Um, and I, I was actually thinking of something because you were talking about how th these failings. Um, well, you know, as Christians, we are called upon to speak the truth and love and we are also called upon to be very life focused, but that doesn't mean that we haven't failed badly in many cases throughout Correct. history. And I was thinking of the uh, the series uh, Downton Abbey. I don't, have you seen it? I've seen a few episodes, yeah. maybe. Yeah. My wife and I got hooked on it when it came out. So <laughs> that's cool. But I, I don't remember which uh, season it was. But there's one in which one of the daughters. Um, has an affair, gets pregnant. Now, this is in a very upper class British family, somewhere World War One, World War Two. I don't, I don't remember which season this was. And she has, oh golly, somebody will probably correct me on YouTube. Maybe it's her grandmother, some relative, right, older relative, um, who is obviously not somebody you would expect would, you know, promote abortion. And she's probably horrified to go into this at time, very illegal clinic. But she is also more horrified by the impropriety of somebody in their fine state of life having this affair. Mm. So she actually brings the girl, gets an appointment at this like secret top floor clinic in London, right? And thankfully, the daughter at the last moment opts to have the baby and they leave the clinic. Then, of course, the baby is raised. It's given to um, a couple who's farming their property, tenant farmers, to raise as if it's theirs. And nobody, friends, family, nobody else is supposed to know that that was her baby, right? She just leaves town for a while. Yeah. Because this would bring so much humiliation on, on this family. And then this plays out over the next season or two with a lot of really painful tragedy because the farmer's wife has some mental issues and i think they couldn't have children and she becomes obsessively attached to the child oh my and then the daughter and the family is trying to you know sneak these visits to see her daughter and there's a lot of drama around it but you think back about all of this what induced them to consider this option of abortion well nobody on the show seems to be overtly christian but they're in a very christian milieu okay this is 
kind of still the height of Anglicanism. It, it, um, England's still considered a Christian country. Mm-hmm. Morals and values and all of this are super important still. But it's also in this very cold way. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't run to your dad and say, Dad, I'm, you know, a teenage girl, I'm early 20s, whatever. I made a mistake and I'm pregnant. And expect your dad to be like, or your mom, to be like, oh, honey, it's going to be okay. We're going to be with you and help support you. Right. These these very, um, I don't want to call them morals because they're not actually morals. But it's a sense of propriety, which is probably rooted in a moral understanding. That's but it's a better become word. very cold and distant from that. Yes. Becomes then very harsh. It's like you're taking this Christian morality of you should wait until marriage to have sex and then removing all charity from it to where it's become you horrible person. You had sex before marriage. I don't want to see you. I want nothing to do with you. I want you to get rid of your baby and any hint or sign you ever made this mistake. Well, that's exactly the kind of behavior that will push somebody towards an abortion. Yes, yes. And I know it's a long-winded way to, to say what I was trying to say, but I think that we have often as Christians been, I know I'm not saying like individually, but as a culture, been responsible for lack of charity that helps to drive people into situations where they then feel the need to go down these roads um, that, that in the end only make their lives worse. Yes. You know, it's, it's funny. very tragic. It's funny you said that because when I was in uh, high school, I was in a play uh, with my church um, mm-hmm. theater troupe, and we did a play called Kiss and Tell, which was set in the 1940s. And in fact, they made a movie about it probably 10 years later, starring Shirley Temple when she was a young okay. adult. I've never seen and, it, but the name sounds yeah, familiar. And I starred as one of the main characters, and my future wife was also in this play, which is great, as, nice. as was my mom and dad and now father-in-law. Did you all kiss and tell? Um, we were not in a position where we could kiss. Okay. And this is actually when I started developing a crush on her. Okay, so you were fairly young. It was kind time. of secret. Yeah, well, I was like 18, okay, I'd say. Okay, so not super young. But it was, I was playing like part of 15-year-old, gotcha. and he was kind of a, a klutz and a goofball, and uh, he kind of was all over the place. And the whole the whole premise of this play was that the girl he has a crush on, uh, uh, her best friend is uh, secretly marrying her brother uh, because he's in the war and they want to do a lope without the parents knowing. But at the same time, her best friend and her families are at major odds with one another because there's there's feelings of bad, one being a bad influence. And the whole point of the play is that one person is thought to be pregnant that is not. Gotcha. And so they elope, they get pregnant, but nobody knows they're married. Mm-hmm. And so somebody sees this girl accompanying her best friend to the obstetrics office, mm-hmm. and they think that, oh, well, that means that she's pregnant because they didn't see her. They right. only saw the younger girl. Right, right. And so everybody's wondering who could possibly be responsible for getting her pregnant. 
And of course, it's the bumbling guy that I'm playing the part right. of, right? Um, but so it's a situational comedy just sure. to kind of emphasize people's reaction to an unexpected pregnancy mm-hmm. and holding to this propriety that you're talking about. I mean, they were literally considering marrying them off up in Vermont, a thousand right. miles away, right. and then coming home with a baby sister or something, right. um, uh, grounding them for their lives, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it was just hilarious how they did it. Uh, the dad's calling the obstetrics office and trying to talk to the guy and say, I'm going to kill the guy. Like it was, it's funny how they portray it, but how often is that people's actual lived experience Mm -hmm. that isn't funny? (laughs) It's what pushes people to actually consider, well, I don't want to deal with that kind of pain or judgment or shame. And I'd rather abort the child. Yeah. Because I think it's not always, especially in cases like teen pregnancies and stuff, it's not always a matter of, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to deal with the child. But I think often it is a matter of, I want to hide this from my family. Yes. Yes. And I think that's the point I'm, you know, I'm trying to get at here a little bit too, is it's not just about a law having been overturned. And as you said, it's also about changing hearts. But part of that is when we ask, why do abortions happen? We realize that there is a lot that needs to be done in our society, in our culture. Massively. Massively. A tremendous amount that is also very incumbent upon us as Christians. You know, we preach charity. Well, we, we better show it. Um, not just say, thou shalt not, but also say, let me put myself out there in such a way that that changes can happen to where you won't be in that position. Yes. Or if you are in that position, you're not treated as some societal reject and marginalized, but you're shown love, help, compassion, all the rest of it. There's many reasons for abortion. It's interesting, though, to me to think that, because, yes, we have a long way to go, but how did we even get to a point where Roe versus Wade could even be overturned? Let's talk about that. How many of us felt that, Yes, I want to believe that I'll be the pro-life generation. I'll see Roe versus Wade overturned one day. I will, I will, I, I will. I don't think it was going to happen. But how many actually really knew that or believed that? Right, exactly. And, yeah. and it's so easy to feel that before, right? Mm-hmm. On this side, it's like, what? Right. <laughs> what? But I look at it as evidence of obviously political timing and, you know, the right person was in place to appoint the right Supreme Court justices, blah, 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 blah. But all of that was weird and crazy. All of that felt like it shouldn't have happened. Exactly. It, it was, so it was cosmic. Be it was yeah. providential. And I heard a, a priest once say that, you know, as the uh, a, amount of perpetual adoration chapels mm-hmm. rose and surpassed the amount of abortion clinics, so too did the abortions start to decrease. And even the pregnancy centers started to increase to the point where they also one day surpassed the amount of abortion clinics open in this country. So what you're reali- what we're realizing is that when Roe versus Wade was implemented in 1973, that was the height of the sexual revolution and the cultural upheaval and the the ultimate fruit, perhaps, of the Cartesian worldview uh, and some of the scientific and industrialized attitudes that have pervaded people. But 
And, and obviously there are massive repercussions that have flowed from that since then, right? Mm-hmm. All the way to the Obergefell versus Hodges case in 2015, the legalized gay marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I understand all of those connections, but, but we have to also recognize that abortion kept increasing after Roe versus Wade legalized it in all 50 American states until about the year 1990. Mm-hmm. And this was right around the time that, you know, the 1980s and 90s was when our generation was being born, right? So in some terrifying way to think of, you know, John Paul II may have been the man who rose up from the Nazi Holocaust and the communist, you know, ideologies. But who is being raised up today that survived the abortion Holocaust to then address these issues and actually communicate with people in a way that resonates on their hearts and helps them address this, not just to overturn a law or a court case, but to transform hearts and change whole lifestyles so that we abortion's unthinkable, undesirable. There would never be a situation that could possibly happen, even the most horrific cases, mm-hmm. that we would even consider abortion. Right. right, and that's that's what we have to do, and to do that, I think it, it would be valuable, could be helpful if we looked at maybe some uh, not arguments for argument's sake, but more ideas, concepts of what is the human person, what is right. I mean, I know we didn't entire two episodes on what is man right? right and so that's those are valuable things well, to kind can, of contribute say to this, what what is a fetus maybe. what is a fetus <laughs> yeah. what is the unborn or what uh, a new term that's come about in the pre-born. last 10 years what is the pre-born right right so that we don't just get this idea that oh this is unborn you'll never right. be born right but rather you're gonna be born right that's this just like the obvious the thing. automatic result right if you didn't do anything and nature took its course odds are the child's going to continue developing naturally yeah. and in a healthy way in the womb and then be born into the world, right? You know, um, I think this is, this is really important. I did want to just real quickly yeah, sure. jump back to something because you were talking about history a moment ago. And, of course, abortion didn't start in the United States. And, of course, abortion has been around for centuries. It's not a new idea. Right. But on a limited, smaller scale, right? Um, oh, yes. That's, that's also important. It's not just an American problem. No. And so we look at some of the things that seemed to bring us there in the U.S., but we also need to look back a little bit further. And it's interesting because in modern times, so again, abortion, people have attempted to have abortion for a long time. But again, it's been small scale, little clinics, certain doctors. Uh, And this goes back way in history. The idea of sort of abortion as a choice across the board and being super common, that is very modern. That is very recent. And so before uh, Roe versus Wade, within this modern setting, it first appears on this sort of scale in communist Russia. And this is very interesting because you, you also spoke mm. of some of the other ideological mistakes that we've made in, in modern times and the rupture of the family. So you go back to the Bolshevist revolution in 1917, and then you go a, a little bit past that. Um, well, this is when things are actually happening, but I should actually go earlier. Look at the Communist Manifesto and some of the ideas that were laid, laid out in that. Well, one of the, the big principles 
was the destruction of the family. Yes. This was considered a bourgeois construct, right? It was a, it, it was designed, had nothing to do with a, a moral or a natural or a divinely mandated arrangement, none of that. Marriage was seen to be purely an economic factor that had been imposed by the wealthy to control society, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was explicitly stated in the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels uh, that they, in fact, wanted to destroy this notion of the family. And in fact, in a bit of rhetoric, uh, they, they say something to the effect of, so we as communists are being accused of wanting to, uh, you know, do away, abolish the family. To this charge, we plead guilty. And they go on to say, this is because we think family is bad. And, you know, it's a part of the of this, this sort gosh. of bourgeois thing. And they point out justifiably the hypocrisy of many people um, at the time. Who, and, and that's a legitimate criticism sure. of hypocrisy. With I mean, think of the play I referenced or, mm-hmm. or da- Downton Abbey. There sure. is hypocrisy of how people treat others. Oh, yeah. Or people talking about family. And, you know, I think about this now. You, you mentioned gay marriage a moment ago. Um, people that that may be on supposedly religious grounds opposing that, but then are okay with their fifth divorce. I was like, well, okay, maybe we need to, maybe this means neither side is understood. This is where we need a holistic Christian anthropology. Because right. it's like, if you're okay with that, then, then that side hasn't understood marriage either, right? Right. Uh, but anyway, when you, how does this play out historically? Well, there was an actual attempt after the revolution to split the family. It was very intentional. And it was to really do away with this traditional bourgeois notion of family, <coughs> supposedly capitalist notion of family. And so um, couched under things that looked good, like more freedom for women, for example, options were then forced. So women could not only go out and work, get jobs, they were forced to. And in the early days after the revolution, men and women who were married were intentionally sent to work in places separate from each other often to where you had to travel by train. The idea was to get rid of those familial ties. My gosh. So it wasn't just a matter of saying, okay, women, you're emancipated now. You can go out and get a job and yada, yada. You don't have to stay at home and raise the kids and cook, right? Which, so that could sound really good. But instead it was, you know, your the the, the communist superiors were saying, all right, you're going to go work in, in Minsk and you're going to go work in, in Separate wherever. them, get them out of the mentality of being, being together right. on a regular basis. And so divorce became actually encouraged. Right. And the next thing that was also became acceptable was abortion. So you begin with this destruction of the family, particularly the initial unit, the husband and wife, which then leads to great promiscuity. And that's okay in, the, in this, in this worldview. World right. Because if you're doing that, you're not overly attached to your spouse. Correct. Because you're supposed to be attached to the state. Right. 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 Not to the spouse. And so... This, of course, leads to several things, the promiscuity and then multiple cases of divorce and remarriage. Many times, two, three, four or five times. And then, of course, you also have these situations where there's an unintended pregnancy in the situation. And so throughout Russia, they began setting up abortion clinics throughout Russia. So this predates Roe versus Wade by, you know, 60 plus years, right? Well, what's interesting is... 
This situation was so forced on the people that it became widespread almost overnight. Divorce, abortion, all of this. And it therefore happened so quickly, more quickly than it did here in the United States, that the Russians woke up to it more quickly than we have because the consequences were catastrophic. Yes. And in a matter of not more than a few years in communist Russia, they began fining people for having too many remarriages and trying to make abortion more costly. I think there was fines applied to that as well. They began to try to clamp down on the very e thing that had been promoted giving, five, ten years earlier. incentives, financial incentives to couples yeah. for having children. Yeah. Right? Like, wow. So <laughs> it's like it, it became so bad so quickly because it was being forced on people that they sort of reaped the fruits more quickly than we apparently did here in the United States yeah. and immediately said, whoa, this is not working out. We need to put the brakes on. Whereas the United States, it took us a whole, or is still taking us a lot longer to figure that out. Um, but one little last side note on this, and I want to get into what you were going to talk about. And maybe we could take a break, get some more water here Yeah, let's take a break before we do that. But uh, just one little interesting historical tidbit is around 1969, 1970, here in the United States, and this is the height of the sexual revolution, there was a group called the Weather Underground. I don't know if you've, have you ever heard of them? Mm -mm. Okay. They were sort of an offshoot of um, a number of a, a sort of larger umbrella group that had started in universities. Um, I want to say it was called like the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society or something like that. And in spite of the, the word democratic, it was more of a sort of a socialist um, backdrop in ideology behind these groups. Sure. And they were involved in trying to change things in universities. They were involved in the civil rights movements and protests and so forth. But the Weather Underground was an offshoot, and they were very radical, much more so than the SDS or whatever the, the acronym was there. And the, uh, the Weather Underground was um, explicitly neo-Marxist, right? So they were definitely pushing a sort of communist agenda. And they were a lot more radical in their activity and in their beliefs. But around 19, they only lasted for a few years. They ended up being declared as a domestic terrorist group and were shut shut down, right? Okay. Um, though certain members still exist today and have some uh, influence that's quite interesting in our country currently, but that's a whole nother, another sure. show. <laughs> but around 1970 to 71, I believe I've got, it was either 71 to 72 or 70 to 71, they began what they called a program that was entitled Smash Monogamy. Yes, this is rather interesting because this ties in with what I was just saying about Russia. They began hosting orgies amongst their groups. Now, you might think, okay, this is like sexual revolution days, right. you know, 69, 70, 71. This is Woodstock. This is free love. So maybe they were doing it just because they right. wanted to. <laughs> right. Right. Maybe they were doing it just out of passion. No. This was intentional on the part of the leaders because they were Marxists in their thinking. They did not want the members of their group to have not only spouses, but boyfriend and girlfriend, because this led to an emotional attachment that was greater than the state. But in Marxism, nothing is greater than the state. Right. Right. Or the collective. This was a case of a collective that was not the state. It was a society. So by forcing people, you were actually forced to attend these orgies, right? This was like a rule. That's in the group. horrifying. It is horrifying. But the idea was rather devilishly understandable. The idea was break all personal ties. Right. So you're going to have to cheat on your boyfriend or girlfriend, right? 
and therefore you all will not develop these deeper attachments. But again, you reap what you show, you reap what you sow. And so this again is in this sort of Marxist setting. It is intentionally trying to break down family, personal ties, and so forth. So they have these series of orgies for a year, and they cut them because everybody had gotten diseases, and they had to stop doing it. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, true story. Talk about a healthy fear of the Lord, mm-hmm. uh, or rather, or let's, let's say— Just a, the way nature works. The even, way which nature is, works. Which God designed. But that yeah. God designed. So it demonstrates God's power, God's ultimate design, regardless of human opinion and all of this, uh, this relativistic worldview yeah. that is really fueling all of this, right? You can cheat because you're not actually cheating. You're doing whatever you want. Yeah. That's freedom, right? That's yeah. love because we've redefined freedom. We've mm-hmm. redefined love to suit our base instinctual desires that aren't even based on our actual instincts at mm-hmm. all. And it kind of robs us of our humanity, it emasculates us or defeminizes women, right? Mm-hmm. Objectifies everyone and turns us into a collection of body parts. Yeah. And that's that's obviously where things like abortion become necessary. Yeah. Because that's the only way to maintain the quote status quo. Yeah. Necessary in air quotes. Yes, air quotes, right? Not really necessary. It's no but within that worldview then become it be it seems necessary. Yes, it's it's basic supply and demand. You know, I I did a paper in uh, college on the uh the culture of death. You know, I, I took a class called Understanding Human Rights. It probably should have been called Understanding the United Nations Agenda, right? which was really intense yeah. um, because they had talked all about by 2020, we want to eliminate poverty. And uh, I'm thinking, well, how do you eliminate poverty? You don't love the poor. You eliminate right. poverty by killing, abortion, mm-hmm. euthanasia, um, contraception. And so I wrote a paper called Understanding the Culture of Death, a Human Rights Tragedy, right? And I broke down all of the different uh, critically important moral issues the church is facing in the world. And I looked at the connection between contraception and abortion. And it's a big one. when contraception was legalized in 1965 mm-hmm. compared to when Roe versus Wade was legalized in 1973, mm-hmm. Did you know that before 1965, and again, I don't know the reference or the or the data, so you'd have to do some research. You're probably not going to find a lot of this kind of stuff on the CDC, yeah. you know, but to recognize that CDC is not God, I found lots of contradictory information on that sure. same website. So, But there there um, are very good, very solid statistics one can find on this. Exactly. I know, we, I know where you're going with yes. this, so go ahead. And so in 1965 and before... For every 1,000 births, about one child was aborted illegally because mm-hmm. it, it was against the law in America, right? And in 1966, one year, one year after contraception was legalized, that number jumped from one to two out of every 1,000. And it's in, key that this is before the legalization. Before it was legalized. And so then, it's still within the same legal context yes. that it, the number doubles. And then in 1967, it was four. Yeah. Eight, sixteen. It would basically exponentially increase almost to the point where by 1973, it was over 200 children were being aborted per thousand. And by and it continued to increase by the mid-1980s. It was oh, just over 300, which means this is what it means when people say one third of my generation has been lost to abortion. 
One third. It's heavy. And yet to think of since those days, we have found a new generation of Catholics, of Christians, of human beings recognizing the horrors and the tragedies of this of this bombarding culture of rebellion, and they're addressing it. They're actually talking about issues that face marriage, family, sexuality in healthy ways. Now, we still have a long way to go, obviously, because there's a whole subsection of culture that is growing in popularity and acceptance that has a totally different worldview, right? And that kind of leads us to kind of a clash of ideas and concepts, not in ways that we can just let's get into debates and arguments, but rather let's get into healthy discussion and learn how to respect one another so that we can actually arrive at the truth of things. That's the point. But, but uh, that's, you said a third of our generation, you know, that's huge. And again, that's my numbing. That takes us right back where we started with the slaughter of the holy innocents at the birth of Christ or two yes. years after the birth of Christ. So there's this powerful and, video I saw on YouTube called The Sound of Abortion. And it was made 10 years ago by, I think, a guy named Peter Heck. And he uh, said, uh, I just want you to shut your eyes. And for the next you know, minute, we're going to just drop metal BBs in a can, tin can. And each BB represents 10,000 lives who have been lost in America's wars. And it went through the Revolutionary War, Civil War, all the different wars, right? Even the War of 1812, like all up to the war in Iraq. And then it, after all of these BBs were dropped, which was a lot to yeah. represent, they said it since 1973, the war on the unborn child. And it started with a trickle, and then it just exploded. Yeah. And it lasted for probably 30 seconds of this minute-long video, minute-and-a-half video. I, it, it's just chilling. It's just yeah. audible. You know, but to hear the weight that each BB represents 10,000. And that was made 10 years ago. Not just one, but 10,000. That's, that's unfathomable. And we have, mm, we are, we have a lot of long way to go. The sound was heard in Rama, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she could not be comforted because they were not. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Yeah. So with that, everyone, we're going to take a break. We'll be back shortly to get into some of the arguments and the ideas, the philosophy, and some of the practical things that we can do to help instill within people the culture of life that John Paul II called us to, the civilization of love that Jesus Christ established with his death and resurrection. We'll see you in a second. Hey everyone, this week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on, so check them out at familyrenewalproject.com. Welcome back everyone to Spirit Inspire. We've been talking about one year anniversary of the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the implications of that both historically as well as philosophically and what we have uh, been charged by God to, to do and uh, to uh, 
B for others who may not understand why this happened, where the law has changed, but our hearts have not. Uh, the, the regulations have maybe gone back to the states where it's no longer federally or nationally recognized, but yet it's still something that people want. There's still a demand for. There's still an unhealthy attitude or misunderstanding of why this has uh, been changed, right? And so this is this is a moment where, you know, we talked about the darkness, we've talked about all the different things that have led to these difficult days, but yet now I think it's important to see, all right, what do we do from here? Yeah. You know, where do we go and how do we address this? And and I have some different ideas and and uh, experience from my time in college working in the pro-life movement um, with our college students for life mm-hmm. group. But um, I didn't know if you had any particular thoughts or things that you wanted to start with before I launch into some of my uh, background with this. Yeah, not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think moving forward is a big question, and I think you know prayer and charity are going to have to be at the forefront of that because again the the pro-life person is not doing their pro-life thing in order to impose laws on people correct right right. or (coughs) excuse me we do what we do for one reason and one reason only and that is a very positive reason that is because we believe that what is in the womb is a child is a human person. And I have lots of thoughts about that. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure we both do. Yes. <laughs> because that is the key to this now decades-old discussion. Um, and there, there are many genuine folks on both sides. You know, there, you know, I suspect that there have to be a lot of people on the pro-choice side who are going to say that that's not a, really a child because... If you knew it was, how many people would actually have an abortion? Mm-hmm. Hopefully that number would be tiny then at that point. So there's this real belief that that's not a child. But at the same time, we have sort of a, a smoke screen of, of language that has grown up around this, of rhetoric. So the pro-choice side is often presented with a lot of slogans, slogans that miss the point. Yes. We hear about pro-choice. We hear about uh, sexual and reproductive health. We hear about women's rights. My body, my choice. My body, my choice. We hear about poverty. We hear a lot about the hard cases like rape and incest. Yes. And by the way, when we deal with ethics, we should not expect that just because there's a hard case, that means the ethical position is wrong. We wouldn't need ethical philosophers if everything was blatantly obvious. In every case, there are going to be, you you take some kind of like basic moral principle, like thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not steal. We're always going to come across somebody who can pose a problem. Well, what about in this really weird case? And you're like, ooh, that's a bit of a head scratcher. That doesn't mean the basic principle is right, wrong, d- right? D- right. The abnormal doesn't dictate the norm. We're go- right, and that that I think is where we've gotten this really backwards, is because there's this tendency in our culture to focus in on the hard cases, which some of them are very hard cases and require really nuanced ethical thought to understand and, them. And sensitivity and compassion. Like of you have to recognize, like if someone were to say, "I was raped." Why can't I get an abortion? You don't start with, well, because of this, this, and that. You say, I'm so sorry. 
that this happened to you, or I'm so sorry that this happened to someone you know, right? Or if I'm so sorry that this happens, this is such a terrible, terrible a thing. It's it's a it's comes from the heart because it means this right. is an absolute tragedy. If if we begin to recognize the devastating horror of such an action, mm-hmm. that is actually very closely related to abortion, because it is a complete dehumanization and violation. Violization. Violization. I guess that's. No. That just sounded funny when I started violating, but I guess violization. A deep and violating thing. Yeah, we'll just we'll change the grammatical <laughs> right. structure to make that sound better. Right. right. Um, that in a way, to me, rape is murder. Yes. Because it is a complete denial of what makes a person a person. Right. It, it is where a person has said, "You are only a body." You have no rights, no freedom, no personality. You were just there and there for my particular use. That is spiritual murder, right? So they're very connected. Yes, and and we have to help people see uh, patiently, lovingly, that it, as terrible and horrifically violating and evil as rape might be, to then choose to, as a solution to that experience, horrific experience to then enact another horrific experience upon your body uh, and upon the body of another human being does not take away or bring healing in any way. If anything, it only multiplies and adds to the stress. There might be some temporal and uh, temporary uh, feeling of relief because of the lack of conflict or pressure from certain family members or friends from that point forward for a a period of time. But the years and the weight of that pain are beyond comprehension for many. And this is something which is obviously there's basically silence on in the pro-choice movement is we have, again, real, real statistics on the psychological impact that abortion has on people even ones who went in fully convinced that it was the best in their situation, that this is not really a child, um, those are dealt with, in the majority of cases, there are massive psychological traumas that take a lifetime to heal. But again, I think this smoke screen of language, of slogans, of hard cases, all of this obscures the fundamental question, and it is the only question that needs to be asked. Correct. Is this a human life? Because if it is, everything changes. If it's not, well, even if it's not, I wouldn't still say that anything goes. And and that's kind of interesting because when you think about surgeries, well, let's say it's just a surgery, Mm -hmm. just a surgery on the mother's body. Right. We have more rules and laws and regulations regarding what you actually can do with your body in any other medical case than we have with abortion, which is very ironic. It is ironic. You do not get, you know, like, look, John, if I walked up to you. And you're in some sort of like really weird sadistic mood, or not sadistic, masochistic, sorry, yeah. wrong one there. And I saw you like sawing off your arm. I'm like kind of morally obligated to stop you. Yes. If a police officer <laughs> walked by, they'd be like, dude, what are you doing? You can't do that to yourself. Right? So we don't allow people to have a complete freedom over their bodies. And yet in this case, it, it's like, Children haven't needed parental consent like you would need with other surgeries. You know, all this stuff goes out the window. So, yeah, even if it's not a child, I would still say that it is a, you know, it's it's something that even if it was not a child, if it was morally acceptable, 
still should require more safeguards. It can't just be a free-for-all even then. But nonetheless, bottom line is, is it a child or not? That's really the only question worth asking. And last thing, I'll, I'll shut up for a moment because I want to hear your thoughts, but <laughs> I was thinking earlier of Dr. Uh, Bernard uh, Nathanson. He was um, an activist for abortion back um, in the days leading up to Roe versus Wade and remained so for some time. And I, I think he was actually kind of influential in a lot of the public push uh, that, that sort of ended up becoming, uh, leading to Roe versus Wade. <coughs> he was a very brilliant Jewish doctor, and he performed many abortions himself. And then about a decade of this, and his entire perspective went and changed up completely upside down. And for him, it was not a religious thing. He actually eventually became a religious person, but it was after his conversion to being pro-life, not the other way around. Cool. Yeah, That's it's very good. cool. And it's very important, actually, because yeah. his conversion was purely scientific. This was in the very early days when he believed very firmly this was purely a part of the mother's body. This was not a child. It was complete conviction on his part. And this was in the days before um, ultrasound, ultrasounds yeah. became common. And it was ultrasounds that changed his mind. Ultrasounds weren't even invented until like the 1980s. Yeah, it was so. Yeah, it would have been about early 1980s this happened. And so he produced a documentary in 1984 called The Silent Scream, which you may have heard of. It's one of the most important early pro-life documentaries. Wow. And it was based around where he had come to from understanding ultrasounds, right? Yeah. Um, what is interesting is in 1996, he did, in fact, enter the Catholic Church. Um, he was um, um, given the sacraments of initiation by uh, Cardinal John O'Connor, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, he, you know, he was also reckoning not only would he become a major pro-life force, huge one for many years. I think he died in the 2000s. Um, mm. But then he also had to reckon with what he had done. Yeah, in the past. I can imagine. Um, because if memory serves me correctly, I've read his autobiography. And it's powerful. If memory serves me correctly, I'm, I'm pretty much 100% positive. He had aborted more than one of his own children. And when he was asked, because he was wow. Jewish, uh, but during his time as, as an abortionist, he was an atheist. He just, it was kind of like culturally Jewish and he became an atheist. Sure. So moving from that, why didn't he go back to Judaism? And he was asked, why did you become Catholic? And his, his answer was, there is no, and I can't quote this exactly, but it was something to the effect of there is no religion which understands forgiveness the way the Catholic Church does. Mm. And mm. you can certainly understand why he, he was into that. And this is <laughs> why divine mercy is so important. But this was a case, though, it's a very compelling example of a very brilliant doctor who was an abortionist whose mind was changed on this who came from a very honest perspective of, I don't believe this is a human life, and then changed to, I have evidence that convinces me this is a human life. Yeah. And that, that I think, is, bottom line, that is the, the sort of philosophical position we need to discuss moving forward. But again, arguments are not everything because you can convince, attempt to convince everybody of certain facts. doesn't matter how clear you make those facts or how true they really are. You still have the hard question, and then you have the cultural and societal questions. So to me, we really need to 
not be distracted by the smoke screens. We need to hone in as far as arguments go on this is a human life. But then at the same time, we don't just say, look, we've got arguments and a law maybe got passed or changed last year. And so cool, that's it. That still has not addressed the underlying tragedies, hurts, problems, why we are even here in our culture. Yes. And this is nothing less that is called for, but Christian mission to bring the love and mercy of God to all the world. That's what we're called to from the very beginning. And that's never changed. This is the great commission, you yeah. know? Um, and that was something actually I experienced personally in college, even when I was going to World Youth Day and all those pilgrimages. I remember the theme for Madrid was rooted firm in the faith. We talked about this last week with Father John Paul Kern a yeah. little bit. And the, the one in Rio was go and make disciples of all nations. Mm -hmm. And so it was the Great Commission, this sense of really reaching people. And between Madrid and uh, Rio, I was getting heavily involved in our pro-life group on our college campus. Yeah. And we actually made national headlines right uh, before I entered my senior year. So we, uh, we were doing the basics of what most Students for Life groups do on college campuses, where you have sidewalk chalk messages with you know scientific facts as well as pro-life quotes. Right. Um, and of course, people scratch them out or write all kinds of terrible things sure. in response. You also do tabling where you set up a table and you have your literature and different resources and you try to strike up conversation with people. There was clipboarding where our campus minister who helped us found our group taught us to literally just walk up to people who are going to class and say, hey, can I chat with you and walk mm -hmm. with you to class? And you just ask them questions that we've predetermined about just to gauge the college campus, right? right. Um, and these were all really, really uh, kind of nerve-wracking things to even consider doing. Like, first off, you think, oh, am I breaking a school rule by riding in the middle of the night? Because you feel like you're like, defacing the sidewalk or and you make all these excuses i, I don't want to talk to somebody about this because what if they bite my head off or if mm -hmm. they've done something she probably will bite your head off <laughs> right exactly and you might face that right so it it really forced us to say do we actually want to take a stand on this or not mm -hmm. and i remember uh we decided well we wanted to do a display and it was a display to get people's attention and we called it Life Week, and we did this during April. It was actually, we started putting these up on a Sunday, uh, Divine Mercy Sunday, which uh, was a powerful day to begin this project. But it was on the old football stadium, and we used red and white, uh, a, a red and black tablecloth. And one of the big things that we did uh, months before was this thing called the Pro-Life Day of Silent Solidarity, where people, college students, would wear duct tape over their mouth, red duct tape, mm. with in black Sharpie the word life. And so using the, the tablecloth, we then constructed a massive uh, display of the word life as if it was this, you know, red and, white, red and black t uh, uh, duct tape. But it was on a football stadium covering all the bleachers. And we put popsicle stick crosses uh, glued together and we would tape them to a spot that someone could have been sitting at. Mm -hmm. And we filled that stadium. And sure enough, we estimated that about 4,000 people could fit in that section of the stadium that we right. filled. And that is the high number of how many children were being aborted in the United States every single day. 
Jeez. between 3,300 and 4,000 every day. And so we put signs up and, and we left it up for an entire week had tabling and we actually did 24 hour surveillance and on the last night of the display because we didn't want it to get vandalized because we had heard of other student groups having this happen uh a student came with her boyfriend and apparently she claimed she had permission from her art teacher to do this as her art project because this was uh, also an art project of one of our students and she and her boyfriend put condoms on all the crosses to say that, no, if you increase contraception, you'll decrease abortion. That's the real issue. And it's like, uh, no, you're missing the point. And it goes back to what we talked about in the last segment. And we, we got the police involved and, and she had to take him down, uh, before daylight came so that nobody else would see it, but she still got to take pictures. She still got credit. And then they put uh, posters up all over campus with a picture of a condom that said in the middle, never apologize for your art. So we were all of a sudden criminalized and demonized. And the, uh, it ended up in the Bowling Green news as well as, uh, students for life of America picked it up and made it national where, um, the president of students for life was interviewed on like Fox news or other places, um, about this. And, uh, we got a lawyer involved from the Alliance defending freedom who helped Mm -hmm. us. But that single moment, that single few days of intensity, um, forced us to, to see that this isn't about making some big statement. You know, there's your 15 seconds of fame. We we won runner up for students for life of the year. It was a great, it was a great experience, but, but all we learned was it's not about being some big pro-life rock star or winning an argument. It's about learning how to win hearts. And so as cool and intense and terrifying as that, the results of her actions and, and the repercussions on the campus were toward our group. I look at that as not the most powerful or important things that happened during that. Right. I look at it as a friend of mine in my theater class came up to me having seen the display. And he said to me in tears, John, thank you for doing this. I just, I just have to say that my girlfriend just got an abortion and I didn't want her to do it. And I tried to convince her to not to do it at, um, but she did it anyway. And I feel like I just lost my chance of being a dad. So thank you. And <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that that matters. That's what actually changes hearts. And, and not just changes them, but softens hearts. Because sometimes the only way the heart changes is through the, the patient, tender love that others show toward them to help them put down their defenses mm-hmm. and be vulnerable and recognize that I'm not out to get you or prove a point or shove a law down your throat and make you live a certain way. I'm here to love you, right. to love you so profoundly, so gratuitously that you recognize your own dignity, that you see your own humanity. You see the humanity and dignity of other people so that you would do nothing less than uphold and respect another. Yeah, that's kind of the point of what all of this is about. You know, pro-life is just that. It is pro-life. And it is not just life in the womb. It is pro-human life. Yes. And we wouldn't care if we did not believe that this was life and that life is worth cherishing. We would not care for the mothers if we did not think that they were made in the image of God. Right? All of this is part of a piece. And that is the answer. 
the answer is is love. It is love for life. It is love for that image of God. Um, I was just kind of thinking when we you mentioned the the contraception thing earlier, and you mentioned some of those statistics, and it's interesting because here we're getting into the heart of a, men, a question of a mentality of a again of an ideology of sorts. Um, that is a very common point that says, right, more contraception, less abortions. Right. <laughs> and that has simply not been true in the United States. Correct. As you saw. But there are statistics that some can point to from certain European countries, which would seem to say the opposite. Uh, the distinction here is interesting, and I think it brings um, a, a kind of a kind of brings us all into focus, is in those countries, contraception and abortion have both been legal. So as your contraception improves, becomes more successful, you see abortions begin to, to tick down. You would think, right? right? Well, they do in some certain countries. But then here we have an example of contraception was not legal. So what's changed? Well, when contraception is legal, you're going into the procreative act with the intention of I don't want a child to come from. So this. if one does result, what is then your mindset going to go? Plan go? B, right, right. And they literally have something called Plan B, right. Isn't that funny? And <laughs> so, if anything, this establishes a mentality which is more likely to adopt abortion Correct. as a Plan B than if we did not have a contraceptive mentality. Is actually goes goes back to contraception, right? This is this is really getting into into the roots of this. Um, so again, this is about a mentality. This is about a viewpoint. This is about an understanding. This is about an ideology. Uh, but that, that contraceptive mentality is completely opposed to reproduction happening to, to life forming from this action. And so then that begins to make a lot of other things possible. It makes, uh, it, let's, let's go back, back to Pope Paul VI in Humanae Vitae. Right. He was prescient. He, he realized, he didn't just say, okay, the Catholic Church is opposed to contraception. He talked about what it would mean for women, how they would be mistreated. People should actually go back and read. Oh, it's beautiful. He, get, he gets vilified for this, it's right? beautiful, I know. You should go back and read that uh, Humanae Vitae. It's powerful. And he was right. Why? Because the moment I have no risk of responsibility, then I am that much more likely to take advantage of you, to cheat on my spouse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so, sure, <clears throat> in the past, people would do these things and children would come from them and no amount of responsibility will ever keep somebody from sinning. It can happen. But it certainly was a major thing to think about. Whoa, I might have a child with this person and then I'm in a whole big mess. The moment it becomes just, it's a one-night stand. Nobody's ever going to know about it. Mm. It becomes that much easier to do. And then once this mentality gets developed, you go from that to more cheating, more divorce. You go to a lot more taking advantage and objectifying of women. And then pretty soon this entire culture is changing. And so when the 